Well, when I'm asked to speak, I'd like to uh, first think, especially if I don't have a lot of time to prepare, I'd like to think, what are my favorite verses? Uh, that's what I think of. What are my favorite verses in Scripture? What are passages that I'm drawn to and I love and I cherish? So uh, with that said, uh, please turn your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 1. I think for many of you, this will be one of your favorites as well. I just want to touch on it briefly tonight. I do not have expanded notes, exhaustive notes on the subject, but I just want to be you know, reminded of these things, and I want all of us here to be reminded of, uh, of the Christ we serve. And the name of the title, uh, the title of the sermon is The uh, Incomparable Christ. The Incomparable Christ. As we get started, let's read. It's hard to know where to start and where to end, uh, but let's read uh, 13 to 18 for the sake of tonight. In Colossians 1, 13 to 18. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. If you don't mind, let's, let's have a quick word of prayer as we get started. Dear Father, as, as we go to your word tonight, uh, give me the words to speak. Uh, give me a clear uh, mind to present your word accurately, that you be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The first chapter of Colossians is a great uh, portion of Scripture that many of us would point to as one of your favorites as I said a minute ago, because it brings us to who the Christ is that we say we worship and love. Now, what is the the occasion for this? Why did Paul write these verses and the ones around it? Why, I mean, the the writers of the New Testament, uh, especially Paul and and others, uh, they did not just write randomly. Keep that in mind. There was a specific purpose and point for their writings of Scripture. They weren't just uh, sitting on the beach one day and, you know, thinking, I'm just going to write a letter. No, they had a specific purpose because this is inspired. This is God-breathed, and he had a purpose, and therefore they wrote the words down that they did. So uh, the background of the book of Colossians is the city of Colossae was being infected by a new teaching, uh, false teaching that came in. They, they didn't deny the supremacy of Christ, per se, but by suggesting that we need to move on from the gospel, which Paul had first preached, uh, they called into question the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. They, they suggested that you could find a deeper knowledge, a deeper experience than Paul had espoused when he wrote and when he was there. And so they were drawing a dividing line between what Paul had taught and what they were now teaching. You see this many uh, times in Scripture. You see in the book of Galatians, for example, you see that as well. 
So Paul is writing to correct these false teachers and false teaching that they had been receiving. Now, in verses 1 to 12, and we're not going to look at that, but I just want to give you a little background so we have some a runway to start from uh, Paul. Uh, Paul had given a greeting. He had offered up some uh, prayers of thanksgiving and, uh, and, uh, and told these dear saints at Colossae that he was interceding for them and giving thanks for them and praying for them. And then he turns his focus right to the problem at hand. And basically uh, what he's saying uh, to these false teachers and the saints there who were under the influence of, of these folks was uh, beware, th- this thinking is wrong. Uh, you just need Christ. You don't need to add to Christ. Okay. And so he goes on for the first uh, chapter here to say, this is who Christ really is. This is who you need to see that Christ really is. And so this is helpful for all of us. This shows us who the biblical Jesus is. <clears throat> you see, uh, very often, I remember it started, with, well, maybe before him, but Peter Jennings and others after him used to have shows, the real Jesus or the biblical Jesus, you know, it usually came right before Easter or something. And they'd have all these false teachers on there. Well, uh, Paul is confronting them and, and these folks here by saying, this is who Jesus is. Let's look at who he really is. And the way to figure out the solution is to find the truth. If you get the truth from the Apostle Paul, you don't have to search elsewhere for it. And I think that's a good lesson for us. The question really is, and if you think about when we go to heaven, a lot of people, I think it was Evangelism Explosion uh, with D. James Kennedy um, said, um, when you die and you go to the pearly gates and God's going to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, Well, this question is very similar to it. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? That makes all the difference for you and me. What do you think of him? Uh, re, uh, remember, uh, Jesus approached his apostles in Caesarea Philippi, and he wanted to find out what the crowds were saying about him. Right? Remember that? And he says, hey, what are people saying about me, and who do they think I am? But then he zooms in the lens. He says, okay, now what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter gave his great confession. So this is the question that we all have to face. Who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? And by knowing this, it'll take care of a lot of uh, false ideas, uh, false, uh, false teachings that are out there. So do you think he's a great moral teacher? Do you think he's a great man, a great prophet? I would question, uh, well, I would uh, propose that if you went to work tomorrow and you asked your coworkers, who's Jesus? They would say these things. He's a great moral teacher. Uh, He's a great man, a great prophet. But who is he really? And uh, the only place that we have to look is the word of God because that's all we have as our authority. We we are called by evangelical Christians, and and that's a good title. We shouldn't fight that title. But the question is, is we are so so intent on giving the gospel out, which we should, which we need to, which we're commanded to do, but are we presenting an accurate picture of who the biblical Jesus is when we give the gospel? Or is he just a 
like a lucky charm or uh, or or a genie, you know, in heaven who's going to bless us if um, you know with good parking spaces and things like that. Do we have and are we giving to those to whom we give the gospel a good picture of the biblical Jesus? We're we're going to look at four points here in this text. Um, and like I said before, there's no way we could plumb the depths of all that's here. But let's just scratch the surface for tonight. First uh, point is Christ is the son of his love. Okay. The second point is um, uh, Christ is our redeemer. Third point is Christ is the image of God and Christ is the firstborn of creation. And we're just going to skim the surface, like I said. So let's dive in here. So, um, so look with me at verse 13. For... He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So this uh, phrase here really points back to the father. And I was reminded of John chapter 17, uh, which is a great picture. And we're not going to turn there, but it's a great picture. We call it the, uh, the high priestly prayer. I tend to call it the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer is, is in uh, Sermon on the Mount, but that's not Jesus praying really. It's teaching the disciples how to pray. Uh, but John 17 is really teaching or showing us the, uh, the intimate fellowship, the sweet fellowship between the Father and the Son. And in that passage he says, and it's implied uh, real strongly, that we believers are love gifts from the Father to the Son. And the chapter is all about that. It's an amazing, amazing picture. So the love that we're looking at here, it says, uh, and we're going to look at this a little later or at the beginning of this verse, but um, we, we have been transferred. Uh, the Father has done this. But it says he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The father loves the son, his beloved son. We're going to just look at that real quickly. When you think about the love of the father for the son, this is um, the ultimate picture of what true love is. When we think about love, and the Bible talks a lot about love in First John. In fact, we talked about that this morning. Um, chapter 4, it talks about um, he loved us um, right before we ever loved him. And 1 John 4 is all about the love of God and how we should reflect that love. Well, um, so when we look at John 17, when we look at verses like this in the epistles, we see that the Father loves the Son. And that's the picture of love for us. It's a manifestation of the desire of the Father to save, to, uh, to manifest his plan of redemption for the world. There's a... Uh, uh, it was an old Christmas hymn, and in fact, I was thinking about this. The choir actually looked at this. Uh, we were going to sing it. We, we didn't, but someday maybe we can. And I want to read the first two verses. Some of you will know it, not many of you, but I've loved this for a long time. It's called Of the Father's Love Begotten. It's a great song. I believe it's written in the 14th century, before the Reformation, actually. So listen to verses 1 and 2. It describes the love of the Father to the Son. It says, Of the Father's love begotten. And it says, Ere the worlds began to be. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the source, the ending, He. 
And then he goes on to say, of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see evermore and evermore. And then verse 2, he says, O that birth forever blessed when a virgin full of grace by the Holy Ghost conceiving bore the Savior of our race. And the babe, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face uh, evermore and evermore. You see those words in there, the Savior of our race, the world's redeemer. That's why the Father showed his love to the Son and sent him here. It's not just that the Son is the object of the Father's love. He definitely is. But it's because of the Father's love he was begotten for our sake. It teaches us that the Father's love is a great love on which all loves are modeled. And like I said before, uh, believers are love gifts from the Father to the Son. It is great love. It is real love. And every other love in human experience is only a reflection of that love. Now, this is lofty stuff, but let's apply it real briefly. And I just thought about this here. Um, Sometimes, and that's why I brought up the theme tonight. Um, There was a purpose in that specific theme we had tonight. And the question you and I will hear, and we have heard and we will continue to hear is this. If your God is so loving, why do bad things happen? Why are there hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes? Why is there death? Why uh, why are there shootings in Texas like we saw last week? Why does that happen? And we are tempted to question his love, and we all reach that point. Sometimes we are all tempted to question his love. Let's be honest about that. We are. But I think it's important for us to know that that his love, and we talked about this earlier in our sharing time, his love has a purpose and eternal, the, like Debbie said, I think uh, that really summed up this little point I want to bring out. To have an eternal perspective is critical because you won't see the love of God if you're looking in a snapshot in a moment of time if you don't see the sovereignty of God and, and have eternal perspective on it. Now, we would say this, and maybe in our minds and hearts we would say something like this. Well, if I were almighty and I were all loving, I wouldn't let that happen. I would be better than God would be in this circumstance. I would be more loving in this circumstance. Well, the question that we need to think about when we focus on ourselves in these things, when we doubt in this way or when we talk to others is this. A few questions to ask them. Would you, or ourselves, would you say that we or you sin frequently? Well, you have to say yes. Are, are we unloving sometimes? Yes. Do you do things wrong toward your spouse, your parents, your coworkers, your friends? I think we all have to say, sure we have. Well, does God ever sin towards you or towards me? No. Has he ever done anything wrong to you? No. Has God ever uh, been unloving to you? No. I think the important thing is is to see that we can admit that we're imperfect. But should, should we be concerned that the God who has never done anything wrong and of which the scripture says he never does anything wrong, you're concerned that he might do something wrong? Don't question the love of God. So I just want to bring that out as we get started here. His purposes are perfect and the Father loves the Son and uh, that's a picture of perfect love. Love always acts. Love is not um, a feeling. It's not merely an emotion, and we know that. So let's look at the active love that we see in verse 13. Two key words there. 
it says he delivered us. Another word for that is rescued us. Rescued us. Think of yourself sinking in the ocean and you need a rescue. He rescued us. But more than that, it's not just that. In Ephesians 2, it says we weren't grasping for the life jacket or the life raft or whatever. We were dead. We were, we were, we were on the bottom of the ocean. We were without life. That's the ultimate expression of love when he rescued us. He pulled us out of the mire of our sin into life. It says he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Do you realize you were in the domain of darkness? Uh, Peter writes about this. He says, you know, now that you're, you're a believer, your friends, your friends look at you and they, they wonder what you're up to. Why are you so different? I didn't have this in my notes, but I just thought of it. And I want to read it for you. It says, uh, for the time... And this is life, okay, life in the domain of darkness, ready? For the time already passed, First uh, Peter 4, 3. It's already passed or sufficient for you to have uh, carried out the desire of the Gentiles or the unbelievers. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts and drunkenness and carousals and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. It reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians 6, right? Pastor Terry this morning says, such were some of you. But verse 4 says, And in all this, they are surprised. These are the ones that you used to run with. They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. And then it goes into the judgment that they'll have to give for that. So that's the domain of darkness. And when you get saved, all right, you're, you're, um, your non-Christian friends are going to say, you know, what's, what's up with you? Well, they're still... They're in the domain of darkness. But we've been rescued, we've been delivered from that. Which is an amazing act. It's all of grace. And the context here, the, um, the rescuing here and the deliverance is a common theme in the first century. They, they would have understood it this way. See, that's when you study the Bible, right, Debbie? You have to bridge the gap of 2,000 years of culture, history, and all that stuff. People in Paul's day would have been very familiar with the transfer after conquest. The conquering kings would come in and they would transfer people from their own homeland into another homeland. But that was a transfer from freedom to slavery. This is a transfer from slavery to freedom. And it is done by the rescue of the father and his transfer of his people into the kingdom of his son by the redemption of his son on the cross. The cross is the instrument by which God can be both loving and just, merciful and righteous, in his redemption of his people. One thing to remember about the cross is this was ordained by God. This was not an oops moment by God. He knew it. He planned it, the book of Acts says. So Christ is the son of his love, and that love shows in the, the rescue and the transferring us from one kingdom to another. So Christ is the son of his love. And now uh, the second point is Christ is our redeemer. And uh, look with me at verse 14. In whom, and it's talking about Christ, the son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay. So uh, Christ is not uh, simply a revelation of the father. There are many people who teach that Christ came to show us the father's love to be a good example. Uh, be careful because that doesn't go far enough. Yes, that's true. 
but that's not the whole truth. Christ uh, came to do more than to reveal to us what God is like. He came to do more than to give us some sort of apprehension of what God is like. Christ, he came to redeem us from sin. And in Paul's day, if you wanted to, to set a slave free, you paid a purchase price for that slave and you redeemed, you, you bought that slave and set him free. And that is what Christ has done for us. And I was studying this and I was thinking about Hosea. It's a great picture of this. Hosea married this uh, woman who was not the best uh, woman to marry, but the Lord had said to marry her, so he did. Her name was Gomer. That's a bad start. I never marry somebody with the name Gomer, young men. But he married uh, uh, Gomer, and um, so it didn't turn out well. She became um, very loose in her living. I'll, I'll leave it at that. And eventually she just went from one relationship to another. And But God said to Hosea, okay, when she is on the auction block, I want you to buy her back. What a picture of redemption. Who would do that? You're buying back your wife who has been unfaithful and has lived in all circumstances. And God says, buy her back because that's a picture of my love for you, Israel. So it is with Christ. He redeemed us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. If you just think about that for a minute, it's amazing. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. We were stuck in sin. We were stuck in the mire, the mud, and we had no way out. The, the thing to think about when we talk about redemption is sin. And I'll just touch on this really quickly. We touched on it Friday night. We, we are guilty of sin. And this is the human, uh, the human race, okay? We're guilty of sin and we are due its penalty. And the second part is we are enslaved to sin. So we're guilty of sin. We've offended a holy God and then we're stuck in the mire of our sin. But the redemption frees us from the guilt of our sin. We talked about this Friday night over and over again. Uh, Think about that. We are perfect in the sight of God. When he looks at us, he sees Christ. And And again, it's all of grace. But then not only are we perfect in our position right before a holy God because he sees us in Christ, he gives us the power to not be a slave to that sin that he freed us from that guilt. So we are no longer, we have no excuse to sin. That redemption not only gets us the freedom from the guilt of sin, but it gives us the freedom not to sin. Uh, When you think of freedom, we have the freedom not to sin. Freedom, so often I think as young people we think, oh, freedom is that I can do whatever I want. No, the most beautiful freedom you can possibly imagine as a human being is the freedom not to have to sin, to worship God the way you were created. Uh, these, these new teachers in Colossae were, were, were coming in and they said, yes, Christ, um, sure, he's forgiven your sins, but if you want to be released from the powers of darkness, from the angelic powers of evil forces, then you need to be initiated in these other rituals. And uh, you see that later on in the book. But Paul says, no, Christ has redeemed you from the domain of darkness. I mean, if you're redeemed and God says that, you are redeemed. To talk about going to someone else or going somewhere else in order to be relieved from the dominion of darkness is ridiculous. It's like 
saying the doctor you're going to to treat cancer, and he's got the perfect solution for your cancer. You're not going to go to him. You're going to go to this huckster who's selling snake oil off the back of a van. I mean, it's ridiculous. And that's the contrast we see here. The answer is provided in Christ. Why would you go elsewhere? Why in the world would you do that? Uh, Thirdly, uh, let's uh, jump down to Christ is the image of God. Okay, Christ is the image of God. In verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now remember, this was written originally to the Church of Colossae, a small church, to address the problem of Gnosticism, this deeper knowledge. He is the image of the invisible God. And everything he says is, it, is to plunge a knife into the heart of, of Gnosticism. Yes, Genesis 2 says that we are created in the image of God. Paul says this. So is he suggesting here in Colossians that Jesus is something less than divine? No way. Okay, how do I know that? Well, two things. First of all, he's about to tell you that he is the one by whom the world is created. And every, every good Jew would know uh, here in this context that the person who created the world was God. So the Jews wouldn't have a problem with this. They knew if he says that he created the world, then he must be God. There's an equation there. He's going to say he created all of it and the whole world was created for him. So the idea was Christ is divine is what on Paul is on Paul's mind. But the key phrase here is he is the image of the invisible God. Okay, God is a spirit. Have you thought about that? God is a spirit. We can't see him. He doesn't have a body like we do. But Christ is the image of the invisible God. He was manifested to show us that. In 1 John uh, chapter 1, remember, it says that they had handled him, they had touched him. Uh, It's also, it says, uh, John 14, right? Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it'll suffice or it'll be enough. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long and you still have not seen? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've looked on my face, you've seen what the Father is like. So uh, the word in the Greek is icon. Uh, It's representative. It's it's, um, it's like an icon. But yeah, the icon you think of of a computer is a little bit different. But he is God, and he is the image of the invisible God. That, that's awesome. When you see Christ, you've seen God. Uh, that's the third point. Uh, fourth, he turns a little corner. He says, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And I'm just going to touch on this uh, briefly. And I think once I explain what this means, I hope it'll, it'll uh, sink in and, and you'll remember it forever. He's the image of the first, I mean, of the invisible God, verse 15, and the firstborn of all creation. What in the world is that talking about, the firstborn? He, uh, so he's not only a son of God's love. He's not only our redeemer. He's not only the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. We will ask, what does that mean? Well, that kind of sounds like there was a time when he didn't, he never existed. Don't believe that. In Isaiah, we, we, we sing at Christmas, uh, we sing at Christmas time, um, a son is given. It doesn't say a son is created. It says a son has been given. Um, we, we teach and we believe here at Fellowship Bible Church in the, the uh, eternal sonship of Christ. He was never somebody other than the son, and he was always God. It does say that, and he's not like one of the creatures, he is God. In fact, it says, it goes on to say, 
all right, yes, it says he's the firstborn of creation, but then it says in verse 16, for in him all things were created. How do you create if you weren't always existing? Right, it's impossible. So that shoots down that. And Paul never includes Christ in the created order because he always existed. Christ was what the Father used to create the world and the universe. So it's Christ who brought the creation into being, all of it. And by the way, Paul goes in to the fact that he created the heavenly realities too. Like if you go on, it says uh, he created all that's in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. So, so he's not only the creator of the creation, he, the creation was created for him. Imagine that. He is not only the creator, but everything is for him. I remember years ago, we, uh, we had a young, uh, this uh, unwed mother living with us, and that was her struggle. She said, you know, the problem I have with God is he's very boastful. <laughs> well, he created everything, he owns everything, and everything is for him. He can do and say whatever he wants. I think that's a wrong way to look at it, and we try to correct her of that thinking. But he is all in all. I mean, who are we? Uh, the clay to judge the potter, right? It makes no sense. It's foolishness. So uh, so uh, getting back to my question that I never answered, what does it mean to be the firstborn then? Well, if you remember uh, Psalm chapter 87, the reference is 87, I mean 89, 27. God calls David the firstborn. But think about it. Wasn't he the youngest of Jesse's children? He wasn't the firstborn. He was the youngest in the family. What he means and what the Bible uh, teaches about this or means about this is he is the preeminent one. He is the one that has authority over everything, the firstborn. In uh, Hebrews 1 verse 2, it says, Christ is the heir of all things. When you think of the firstborn in the context of a king, of a monarch, uh, what do you think? You think of an heir. You think of the one who has uh, primacy given to him. So uh, Paul is really speaking of, of primacy of power here, not a priority of time sequence. Keep that in mind. He's not saying that Christ was born first and then everything else came. He's saying that Christ has primacy over everything. He is the firstborn. And folks, I mean, that's why we're here tonight. That's why we come here Sunday morning, Sunday night, and whenever we gather is to really teach and believe in the primacy of Christ overall. Yeah, don't believe what the false teachers say, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, others. He was not a created being. Christ is the son of God's love. We see that in verse uh, 13. He is the expression of God's love. He's our redeemer. He has, if you are a believer here tonight, think about what he's done. He has rescued you. Think of the Jews leaving Egypt. He rescued you in that way. Uh, from the domain of darkness, you were stuck in the slave market. You were pitiful sinners. Um, one of the hymns says we were worms, and so we were. In uh, Deuteronomy 7, if you think about it this way, when uh, God called the nation of Israel, he didn't call them for any reason like they were larger than other people or they were better than other people. I mean, there were nations all around, but for some reason, in God's wisdom and sovereignty, he chose Israel. So it is with our election. He chose us. You know why? 
Theologically, because he felt like it. That's why. For his glory. So he's not only redeemed us from guilt, but he's redeemed us from the power of darkness, the power of sin. He's the very image of God, is the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. He's a creator of everything. Where else, and this is a good thing to think about as we, as we tie loose ends together here. Where else are you going to go for deliverance from these things, from the power of your sin, for a deeper knowledge of, of God? Are you really going to go somewhere other than Christ? Do other religions, do other religious leaders really have this answer? Can they rescue you from darkness? And are they God incarnate? No way. This is the Christ that we need to tell others about. When we give the gospel, let's not shortchange who Christ is. He is all these things and more. He uh, brought the world into being. It exists for him. Why would you go really anywhere else in Christ? Where are you going to you know, find fulfillment? Are you thinking there's more to life than Christ? You know, the song we sang this morning, All I Have is Christ. If we have Christ, then what more do we need? And that's why it's important. I'm just going to throw this in here as a freebie. That's why it's important that we get to know the Christ of the Bible. That's why we get to know him. We worship him. Every day, we all have the same amount of hours in a day, 24 hours. You need to make time to get to know the God of the Bible and the Christ of the Bible and the Holy Spirit of the Bible. Uh, We need to fellowship with him. Maybe you are here tonight thinking this more you know, this church thing is kind of boring. Um, in fact, it was I believe it was Tozer who said, if you come to church and you're bored, then you're not ready for heaven. And I like that. If somebody were to say, and I just heard this in a sermon this week, and I'll share it. I think it was R.C. Sproul. He said, if you're bored with church, what if um, uh, during the announcement time, the person got up at church and said, next Sunday, Jesus Christ is going to be here in the flesh at church. Would you still be bored? <laughs> then, and the answer would be no. It's a rhetorical question, but we shouldn't be bored with, with the realities of Christ. And passages like this, if this doesn't get your blood flowing, boy, what will? Don't seek some kind of experience, all right, more than Christ. Christ has, is sufficient. He's provided everything we need. Don't seek a deeper experience, a deeper life experience. And then if you're here and you happen not to be a Christian and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, know this. Based on God's word, there's no hope outside of the cross. But if you will come to this Christ and truly trust him, truly trust him, like you're walking on a bridge and you put your foot out in the bridge, you're putting all your weight on this bridge, then you'll be received by him find all your needs met not your felt needs but your really soul's uh, deepest needs because he is the incomparable Christ there is no other so I hope that helps us tonight Uh, think about this passage and um, and be blessed well let's uh, close in a word of prayer and then we'll sing one more song Dear Father, we uh, thank you for these words in Colossians 1. This brief time we've had, Lord, has been sweet as we've seen what your beloved Son, the Son of your love, has done in rescuing us from the domain of darkness and, and taking us out of 
the slavery of our sin. Lord, may we give thanks to you for that on a regular basis. We also think that your son came into this world in flesh and was a perfect representative of you in bodily form, fullness of the uh, Godhead in bodily form. Uh, thank you for your love for us and and how, Lord, we, we can give the gospel out to others and share with them the hope we have, Lord, because of all that Christ has done for us and the future that we have to look forward in being with him. Thank you for these things. We pray that as we leave tonight, that your name will be exalted in our minds and, in our, and with our lips we'll express these things to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.